Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. I am so pumped for today's show. We have one of the experts that we love to have here on the show today is Dr. Kevin Stone. Dr. Stone is a leading orthopedic surgeon, a TED Talk speaker, a founder of the Stone Research Foundation, and author of Play Forever, How to Recover from Injury and Thrive. This guy has been this guy has been featured in the New York Times, Trithly Magazine, Wall Street Journal, Well and Good, and so many others. And he works regularly with some of the top endurance athletes in the space. In addition to that, he's an expert in a wide range of topics and is particularly passionate about um, recovery, regeneration, biology, biologic intelligence. I can't even say it. he's an expert in it. I can barely even say it. And I'm so excited to talk to him today, not only about how to prevent injuries, how to bounce back from them, and some of the technological advances that can help athletes do just that. This isn't the longest episode. It's about half an hour, our conversation, but there's so much packed into it. This guy is one of the leading experts in the world in this field. I can't wait to have him on the show again, and I definitely recommend going to check out his book. This guy is an absolute intellectual powerhouse and a really good guy too. So let's get into my conversation with Dr. Kevin Stone. All right, Dr. Stone, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so excited to have you here. As people know, listen to the show. We always talk about, talk about, talk about, and to, there we go, dedicated amateur runners, but occasionally we like to have professionals come on who can help us reach our potential. I say us because these conversations help me as well. As a 42-year-old master's runner who's always looking to improve and sometimes not going in that direction. Today, Dr. Kevin Stone is here to talk about a lot of different things. I know we first had talked about, when I talked with some, some of your people, like coming on and talking about some of the wear and tear, the lasting wear and tear that can happen to people over time and how you and other professionals have kind of brought people back from the brink, whether it's repl knee replacements, hip replacements, stuff like that, got them back out on the road. And while I want to still talk about those things and plenty more, you just came out of a surgery. So you in Achilles tendon tear. And I'm like, I, at first I like grimaced. You're like, we should talk about this. So we can talk about that for sure. I remember shoot going back to even like the nineties and, and, you know, maybe a decade after that as well, where when in, in a high level athlete, and the person you worked on was a high-level athlete, uh, got an Achilles tendon tear. That was almost like a death sentence for their their elite athletic career. Certainly, they could still be an athlete, but maybe the top end at that point was probably going to be gone. That is not the case anymore. So tell me about this Achilles tendon tear, and also, more specifically, the Achilles tendon's role in runners, because the person you worked on was a runner. Sure. So as everyone, I think, knows, Achilles connects the muscles behind the calf there to the heel, and it's critically important for push-off. So it needs to be able to stretch. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to walk. And so it goes through that stretching cycle. You take two to three million steps per year in normal gait. And so that repetitive stretching is an important characteristic of those collagen fibers. When an Achilles tendon ruptures, and most commonly it ruptures in people between 50 and 70 years old, when they usually say, you know, I came down from a basketball shot or I was on a pickleball court or a tennis court, I heard a shot or I thought someone stepped on me, I turned around and there wasn't anybody there. That's the most common story. But today, actually, I repaired a 27-year-old's ruptured Achilles tendon. And he's not just any 27-year-old. He has the fastest known times on a host of mountains, Mount Rainier, one of them, and a few others. 
So it's a really serious, high-level, very fit runner who still came down from a basketball shot and heard the shot heard round the court, and that was his Achilles tendon rupturing. Now, let me explain. The Achilles tendon, untreated, will heal. And so we've learned that non-operative care of Achilles tendons can work. However, the ruptured ends of the tendons, when they heal on their own, heal with scar tissue, and they heal in a slightly elongated position. And so the push-off when you're going to run or climb or jump is weakened if you don't pull the ends back together. And so traditionally, surgeons would open the Achilles tendon in the, to repair it. And the problem with, with that was that the Achilles tendon is encased in a very thin, wonderful sheath. And when the tendon tears, the sheath usually stays intact. And so there's a fresh blood clot all around the ruptured Achilles tendon. And that blood clot is full of stem cells and progenitor cells and stromal cells, all the things that blood has within it that help healing. And when a surgeon goes and makes an open incision, it loses all that wonderful healing clot and has a high propensity to form scar tissue just from the open surgery. And unfortunately, there's also an infection rate that's not inconsequential from open Achilles tendon repair. And so in the late 1970s, a group, uh, two surgeons called Griffith and Ma, designed a percutaneous technique, and I improved on that technique in the 1980s. And what it means is that we can percutaneously, through little stab wounds, sew back the ends of the tendon to bunch them up together so they can heal in the normal length without losing that wonderful natural clot, without opening the synovial sheath, without making that long incision, without the risk of the scar tissue and infection that can occur from open surgery. And so we followed these patients now over many, many years and decades. We do repeat MRIs as part of a research outcome study. And it turns out that the Achilles heals very nicely. In fact, it's usually hypertrophies in the healing, which means it grows a little bit in thickness. And so the athletes can return to full sports at their full potential without worrying about the Achilles. And so that's been the evolution of this uh, tissue, which, as you said, used to be a devastating injury. It's no longer a devastating injury. There are a few things people should know that seem to increase the risk of an Achilles rupture. Taking certain antibiotics that have a fluorinated compound in them, such as ciprofloxin, that F is part of the fluorinated compound, definitely increases their risk of tendon rupture, as do some steroids. And so those things we try to help people avoid, especially in our top athletes, whether or not stretching and warming up and strengthening before doing another sport other than running matters, we all, of course, think it does, but we don't really have data to prove it. Right. And obviously, there's a pretty substantial gap between, you know, your Achilles functioning just fine with no pain and a complete rupture of the Achilles tendon, right? There's a, a wide gap. And shoot, I, I've experienced Achilles pain. Pain is too strong of a word. Achilles discomfort, especially in the lower Achilles, uh, just above the heel recently. And I've noticed that, especially on my left side, that the propensity for this to happen in carbon-plated shoes has been elevated. So like, if I wear carbon-plated shoes, I will get that sort of discomfort back there. And then I take them off a couple of days later if I'm not wearing them anymore. 
the pain goes away. It again only happens on my left side, so maybe there's a couple of different factors there. Maybe cambered roads or whatever. But it's interesting that like even for me, footwear does have an impact on you know that that region of my body and how it relates to um, discomfort and you know the 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 things that can ultimately affect my own performance in recovery. So let's talk about a few of the issues you just mentioned. So first we'll start off with just a little bit of pain. So if you're having a little bit of pain in the Achilles tendon, it's very important to make an accurate diagnosis. Meaning is this just some normal soreness or is this a real tendonitis where the tendon is inflamed? If the tendon's inflamed, it has a higher risk of a rupture than if it's not inflamed. And so it's important to reduce that abnormal inflammation. And these days we do that often with of course good physical therapy, soft tissue massage, but if we need to treat it, then we use PRP. PRP are taking your own blood, getting the platelets out of them. Those platelets are rich in growth factors. We inject those growth factors along the tendonitis, and that seems to augment and accelerate the healing process. The PRP is a potent anti-inflammatory, anti-fibrotic, meaning reducing scar tissue. It recruits the body's own stromal cells. Those stem cells you hear about, their daughters are called stromal cells or progenitor cells. They rush to the site of injury to help healing, and a PRP injection helps to recruit those. Now, the other thing you mentioned, which I think is really important for your listeners in particular to hear, is those carbon footplates. So carbon footplates are wonderful for increasing your spring, your takeoff power, and they are horrible for the forces going through your joints and your knees and your hip and your back. So if you think about Nike and everyone else spending tens of millions of dollars to develop shock absorbing insoles and soft soles and outer soles, and then you take the street and put it on top of it, otherwise known as a carbon plate, you really are reducing the effect of the shock absorption of that shoe. And so if you don't want to have knee pain and hip pain and increase the forces going through your joints, and you don't need the acceleration factor of the carbon plate, skip it. Now, is it one of those things that you can build up a tolerance or you can strengthen your um, your lower half in a way to develop some sort of like you know inoculation to those forces? Or is this something that is just, this, this just comes with the territory of the, that kind of footwear? The answer is no. <laughs> yes, you, by resistance exercise is the one thing that we know helps build bone so all of us women at a faster rate than men are losing bone mass and only resistance exercise builds bone and also builds muscle. So those are good things in terms of absorbing forces and shock. However, as I mentioned in the beginning, you take two to three million steps per year and up to five times your body weight depending on the height of that step or jump. And so if you're increasing the stiffness or forces of that are going through your joints by using a rigid plate, you are damaging potentially the joints above. Now, some of the carbon plates have tremendous flexibility to them, and so they do not dramatically increase resistance, but others are quite rigid. And so when we look at orthotics uh, coming out of a, a runner who comes into the office and says, hey, you know, my knees are aching, my ankles are aching, my hips aching, we take a look inside their shoe and they've got this stiff, rigid orthotic. As soon as you get rid of that, you cure them. <laughs> 
Yeah, or, so, or so orthotics, man. They have, they have a tortured history in in, in running literature, um, right? The, the the boom, and then you got the born to run, and then you got it coming up again. And it uh, it is funny because even now, like I, I I talked to some PTs. I have PTs in my own family who heard who've been like, "Hey, have you tried an orthotic for this issue or whatever?" And I and I like immediately like rebelled against it. Like I have an allergy to it. Maybe it's like I've, I've read born to run too many times. I like immediately push back. But like so, it, it, it it is interesting. Not all orthotics are bad. I mean, orthotics can help position and stabilize the foot and do a lot of good things. However, the more rigid they are, the more potentially damaging they are. And so if you think about a normal foot, it has that nice plantar fascia, has all those spring ligaments. The foot is designed to absorb force, to stretch, and then to rebound. If you stick something rigid in there, you take away a lot of that foot's ability to respond that way. And so you have to be very careful in how you design an orthotic. In general, we prefer the softest that you can in order to provide the, the stability that you need. Uh, and that's, that's really the best guideline that we can use for people as a generalization. Hey, folks, let's talk about vacation races. So vacation races host half marathons, ultra marathons, and trail running festivals at national parks around the country in week-long running adventures all around the world. These global adventures offer daily 7 to 12K trail runs in the morning and afternoon activities that include high-adventure like, high things like glacier treks, zip lining, whitewater rafting, or cultural activities like wine tasting, falconry, his, uh, historic tours, cooking classes, these things, they offer just such a wide range of things. If you're worried about pace, don't be. They require runners to maintain around a 20-minute mile pace. So as long as, you can, as long as you're basically moving with purpose, you're going to be just fine. These adventures are all all-inclusive, which means hotels, in-country transportation, meals, drinks, activities, and swag are all covered in the trip. And they just announced their full 2024 calendar which you're going to want to check out. Again, I know we just started 2023, but you got to plan these trips way in advance, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. They have 11 different destinations. Examples are like Alaska, Costa Rica, Croatia, Ecuador, Iceland, Ireland, Japan, New Zealand, Patagonia. So many. It really is remarkable. You can go check them out at vacationraces.com. New customers can use Rambling 200 for $200 off any global adventure trip that is not currently sold out. Also, you can use code RAMBLING15 for 15% off any of the half marathons or ultra marathon adventures that are not currently sold out. So remember, it's code RAMBLING200 for the global adventures and RAMBLING15 for 15% off the half marathon or ultra marathons. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for clarifying that for me. Now, you talked about, you know, the, the force hitting the ground, right? So the two to three million steps, the five times your body weight, depending on, you know, the force of that step and the, and the height that you are going, which brings up another point that I would love to address with you. And that is oftentimes we, I, I've heard both sides of the argument that the softer the shoe, the more it's going to lessen the impact into the ground. Also, you know, there's been a lot of studies showing that the the kind of like the, the more minimal shoe, the less your body I guess the, the, I'm phrasing it incorrectly, but basically it reduces strike force to the ground because your body is kind of like protecting itself from the incoming impact. So what have you seen just in terms of recent technology along these lines to limit ground force impact? Or is it just one of those things where the, the, the shoes, you get used to the shoes that you have, and then ultimately over time, it's going to be the same no matter what? 
So let me ask you and your listeners a question. Which produces more force through the body, walking a mile or running a mile? I, I guess I, I would assume running a mile. And so the answer is it depends on how you run. And so oh, that's not fair. That's not a fair. <laughs> so all right, I'm just kidding. All right, you keep going. <laughs> short strides, midfoot landings, soft surfaces, either track grass as opposed to concrete, or softer running shoe, decrease the impact going through the body. And so since you take fewer steps when you run than you do when you walk, the total forces are actually about the same if you have good gait. Now, peak forces can be higher because you're the landing, but that's where soft surfaces and good shoes and shock absorption really do matter. And so the point for the listeners, of course, is that um, gait matters, technique matters. It's worth it to grab a running coach, uh, whether from a school or your great running store or somebody you know or online, and have them look at your running gait and see how you can improve it. Uh, great runners in the world become great runners often with great coaches. And great coaches aren't just determining their workouts. They're determining their style, their gait, their mechanics. These things matter a ton. That's a great point. And I've, and I've heard over time that, the, the, that to a certain degree, the more you train, especially if you put in those, you know, the, those you know, faster paced workouts that can help you um, increase your efficiency in your stride, that to a certain degree, the more you train, the better your stride gets. Is that something that you've seen as well, or is, or is that just more of like anecdotal information? Well, not necessarily, because we see people train a lot more and just run worse. They mm -hmm. keep making the same mistakes over and over again. It's really hard to analyze your own running gait, even your own walking gait. Getting a great therapist, a great trainer, a great coach, and have them work with you a bit. You'll be shocked how much you improve your efficiency, your running, your endurance, your times, all the things that matter, uh, matter with good technique. And so it's funny, we're all so used to getting coaches for basketball or soccer or wherever team sport we're playing. And we forget that we are our most important team. And there are really smart people out there who spend their lives looking at mechanics and looking at gait, looking at running styles, looking at running goals, and can help you do much better than you can on your own. I love that. Now, we are in the era where, like, I know people in my life, relatives and, and just, you know, good friends of mine who were older than I am, who kind of went through, like, the, the first running boom, like the 70s running boom. They're running marathons all the time. They're putting in crazy mileage. They're wearing shoes that are thinner than like the frames of my eyeglasses and they, they, you know, put in a ton of miles. And then they, they talk to me today, like, Oh my gosh, my knees, my, I'm getting, my knees are getting replaced, you know, knee running ruined my knees and so on and so forth. And they frame it as if, if they could go back and change things, they probably would to a certain degree. You've been through, you know, you've been through this the whole time, right? You talked about like the evolution of the, the Achilles tendon um, surgeries and, and how that progressed. How have you seen this evolution of running injuries lend itself towards um, how people can approach running in a way to not only make it sustainable for a long period of time, but also that the options once things have, you know, degenerated to a certain degree, bring people back into the sport to a degree that maybe they didn't think they'd be able to. 
So long question and lots of possibilities to go with it. But let's let's start in the beginning. <laughs> My fault. I, I'm the king of like five part questions. So you can tell you can you can attack any part that you want, and we can take it from there. So number one, running does not hurt knees. Running does not hurt cartilage. You can run forever if you don't have an injury and you have good mechanics. An elephant at 15,000 pounds can run 40 miles an hour for 60 years and rarely ever gets arthritis. It's not the amount of force going through the joint. It's the technique or the injury. And so the key, first of all, to run forever or play forever, which is the title of a book that I wrote for Amazon and, uh, and for the public and for my patients. So it's on Amazon is what I meant to say. Uh, we focus on the biology of articular cartilage and the techniques to maintain it, to repair it if it's injury, injured, to treat, prevent, and cure arthritis. And so if you do get an injury, the key is to repair it right away. The old days of just living with an injury in a joint changes the mechanics so much that that's when the joint degrades. Or the old days of when you tore your meniscus cartilage, that shock absorber inside your knee, and the surgeon goes in and takes it out, dramatically increases the force concentration in the knee joint and dooms the joint over time. And so today our bias is repair that torn meniscus right away or replace it if it's already been taken out and you're getting knee pain because we do lots of meniscus cartilage replacements now all the time for runners and for other athletes. It works quite well, and we've got over 30 years of history of doing these in hundreds and hundreds of patients. So that's the next step. Then the next line is that um, most people who have been told they need a knee replacement, in fact, 80% of people who have been told that do not. So let me say that again. 80% of people who have been told they need to have a total knee replacement do not. It's Except not your just, patients. Your it's patients. Not, they're, 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 it's not just my data. It's data from <laughs> a very good group in, in England I'm just, as well. I'm just, I'm, yep. And I'm just kidding, Dr. Smith. Obviously, if yep. you said tell it to a patient, like they should listen to you. But that, that is really interesting data. All right, keep going. I'm sorry to interrupt. Let me, let me explain why. Because when you're told you need a knee replacement, it means you went to the doctor, you had knee pain, they took an x-ray and they said you have arthritis. And they either said, give up running or give up playing your sports or come back to me when you need your knee replaced or you need your knee replaced now. One of those stories. And it turns out that the patient actually has four major options. Number one, they could just have injections of lubrication and PRP, these growth factors, which dramatically improve how the knees feel. They don't cure anything. They don't cure the arthritis but they improve the lubrication inside the knee and they're potent anti-inflammatories. And I've got many patients who come in once a year before ski season with these horrible looking x-rays. They get their lube job, which is a combination of PRP and HA. And they say, hey doc, you know, it gets me through the ski season. I'll, I'll have you fix my knee when I can't ski or run. So that's stage one is non-operative care with lubrication and growth factors. And combined with that, of course, is a great physical therapy program, strengthening fitness, all the things that we believe help keep joints going. Number two, many people have been told they have, need a knee replacement still have joint space on the x-ray. They're not bone on bone. There's still some cartilage left and we can replace the meniscus and regrow the articular cartilage. And that's called a biologic knee replacement rather than an artificial one. So no metal and plastic. And then number three, most people have been told they need a knee replacement actually have only worn out one side of the knee. 
either the medial side or the lateral side or the patellofemoral joint. And those parts can be replaced individually. So it's called a partial knee replacement. And the advantage is no muscles cut, no ligaments are, are taken out. The joint feels so much more normal. The range of motion is full. They usually, by three to four months, 98% of the patients say that it becomes a forgotten knee. And what's really helped that is the advent of robotics. We now build 3D models of someone's knee joint, and on those 3D models, we can place the implant optimized for them, diminish the amount of surgery. Surgery takes an hour, full weight bearing. And I just had a patient run across the United States on bilateral partial knee replacements. And so we know we can return people back to running on these implants. And then for the last 20% who truly do need a knee replacement, what has changed there is that with robotics, the precision has increased so much of removing the least amount of bone that we can use bony ingrowth components where the body grows into the metal cap and the metal tray on the tibia. And so you'll never knock it loose or almost never knock it loose. So you can return to running, you can return to playing sports. We have people doing all sports, climbing, skiing, running, playing tennis on these bony ingrowth, uncemented knee resurfacing prostheses. So I think people have a great future of staying very, very athletic. Uh, all of our research is around how to treat, cure, and prevent arthritis. But once you get it, there are lots of options for keeping you running. I really appreciate you going step-by-step step there. That that was extremely comprehensive, especially from a general perspective. I do want to touch on one of the things that you talked about early in that answer was that the meniscus issue, right? In that, you know, my dad is a, like, <laughs> is someone who was affected by this, right? So he kind of like snip, 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 snip. All of a sudden his meniscus is gone. And he's like, all right, I guess I can't run anymore. Again, this was, you know, mid to late 90s. So obviously not exactly where we are now. We're talking, you know, 25 years ago. But it got to the point where, like, he had damage, 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 and all of a sudden it was taken out. This is someone who, again, start, I shouldn't say again because it's the first time I'm bringing it up, but, you know, picked up running a little bit later in life, ran really aggressively very early on, kind of like traded one addiction for another, gave up cigarettes, picked up running, ran really hard. He probably didn't have the best form, but it was just kind of gritting his way through it. And then he had a pretty short shelf life. And all of a sudden he had meniscus, you know, it's again, snipped out, snipped out, snipped out, and then it's gone. So when you have that sort of issue with like with the meniscus and people worry that like, oh my God, my running career, like I'm having this issue and I've heard such horror stories. Can you talk a little bit more about like what the meniscus is and how the evolution of procedural options have changed in terms of, you know, the ultimate prognosis for people with that sort of um, injury or that sort of uh, issue? So inside the knee joint, you have two types of cartilage. You have the articular cartilage, which is that white shiny surface when you crack open the chicken wing, that's articular cartilage. And when you get arthritis, it's wearing that articular cartilage down to the bone. And the second type of cartilage inside the knee is called the meniscus cartilage. And it's a fibrocartilage, meaning it feels like a piece of squid. And so that fibrocartilage diffuses the forces when the femur presses down on the tibia in walking or running. And by diffusing the forces, it distributes the, the force across the top of the tibia. When you have an injury to that meniscus, you tear it. All of a sudden, that force distribution is, is messed up in a sense, just like a car tire that's out of round now. And so that, that torn meniscus acts like a little windshield wiper inside the knee, 
and, and arthritis usually develops when you have a torn meniscus that's painful and untreated. And so back in time, surgeons would go in and take out that meniscus and that doomed the knee because now the femur is pressing directly on the tibia without any force distribution or stability at all because the meniscus also acts like a little doorstop to provide stability. Well, they learned early on that was a bad idea. And so then for a number of decades, the surgeon would go in and take out part of the meniscus called a partial meniscectomy. And it turns out that even a partial meniscectomy increases the force concentration on the top of the tibia. And so it turns out that it's far better to sew the meniscus back together to repair it whenever possible than to take out sections of the meniscus. Now, sometimes you can take out a section where you're just trimming the torn fibers underneath and preserving the top, and so preserving the force distribution. But many times it's best to just repair the meniscus if at all possible. And then lastly, if the meniscus has already been taken out, we can put one back in. That's called a meniscus allograft or meniscus transplantation. And that restores the normal mechanics of the joint we get these meniscus from donor donors who unfortunately usually fall off their motorcycles. So young, healthy donors tragically end up uh, dead and donate their tissues. But those tissues provide a wonderful service to people who need tissues, whether hearts or lungs or meniscus cartilages. And so those donations help keep people active and diminish the chance of arthritis. All right, everybody, I want to take a quick break and give a shout out to Lagoon. That's right, Lagoon Sleep. You heard me in the intro talking about their pillows. Oh my gosh, they are amazing. This year, I'm really trying to take better care of myself, both before and after my runs. And one of the areas that I'm really focusing on is sleep and not just about the time you the time you spend in bed obviously that's important but also being sure you have quality and not just quantity and that's a big thing right we talk about all the time with training quantity and quality same thing with sleep and part of that is your pillow i have the fox pillow that was the one that i got after taking the online quiz which was really interesting to take because you, you figure out like what what exactly do i need what do i need my pillow for how do i sleep what are my preferences and it makes a big difference. And this is a pillow I've had for over a month now. It's coincided with my biggest 30 days of training that I've ever had. And I feel really, really good. And I know a big reason for that is because of how I'm sleeping and how I'm sleeping is affected by my pillow and things are just going so well for me. Waking up from my morning runs has never felt better. I'm refreshed. I'm pain-free in large part thanks to Lagoon Pillow. So go to lagoonsleep.com. That's L-A-G-O-O-N sleep.com forward slash rambling. Take their awesome two-minute sleep quiz to find your match and then use code rambling for 15% off your first purchase today. That's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned before, especially when we we're talking about ground um, ground force, running on soft surfaces can be helpful uh, to a degree in the, in that in that situation. So when you're advising runners, to what degree should they be searching out soft surfaces? And what are some examples? Obviously, like a trail run, like running out in the trails is one thing, but some people live in more urban areas. Like, so maybe they're the, the degree to which they can run on softer surfaces, especially outside, can be lessened. So, especially if someone lives in a more, you know, urban or suburban area where trails are maybe not readily available and they can't just like ride their bike or even walk to a trailhead. What are some ways um, that they can run on softer surfaces and to what degree should they be searching those out? 
They should definitely search them out because you really do diminish the impact going through the knee joint. And so whether it's a track that's well designed with a soft shock absorbing track, whether that's grass, whether that's even a treadmill, if that's what they use, but it's one designed for shock absorption. Uh, for people who have the space and need an alternative in elliptigo, which is an elliptical machine that goes outdoors on wheels, is the closest thing I've found to running without running. Um, for those folks who need to take time off running or mix up their running workouts. And so that's another way of doing it. But really, you know, being clever about finding good surfaces and then being smart about using good shoe wear. And not just shoe wear, also the gait. We mentioned earlier on, you know, midfoot, midfoot landing, uh, short strides, good form, really determine how the mechanics of the body work when running. Again, I know that you're probably not going to get into like 100% specific gait analysis in this middle of this conversation. If for no other reason, we're not looking at a, a picture of someone running where you can point to certain things. With that said, one of the exercises I had heard from many people and people that I trust uh, to help improve someone's gait is doing barefoot strides on a soft surface. Again, once assuming that like you know, like they're not running on rocks and things like that, but like, you know, barefoot strides on soft surfaces, whether that's the, in, the inside of a, of a track or at a soccer field and things like that. Is there validity in that statement or is that something that, you know, feels good, but maybe doesn't have a huge long-term benefit? I really don't know the answer to that. I, I haven't seen data that would support that. Um, we saw way too many, you know, soft tissue injuries from barefoot running. Uh, it just, you know, came and went for good reasons. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think the middle ground there between the barefoot running side and the soft shoe side is we see um, the advent of the zero drop shoe. Or if people don't know, like basically the forefoot and the heel of the shoe is at the same level. So there's a zero drop from the heel into the forefoot. So shoes like Ultra are kind of known for that. Um, Topo is another one that they do that prominently. Uh, whereas like Hoka is traditionally a five millimeter drop and Nike is traditionally a 10 millimeter drop and so on and so forth. Have you seen um, either positives or negatives from the lower drop shoes as opposed to maybe more of the higher drop shoes? So the problem is most people don't walk barefoot most of the time. Most people walk in a shoe with a heel for most of their lives. Uh, and so the problem when dropping into a shoe that is essentially a barefoot or a flat shoe without a significant heel lift is that you're getting an immediate stretch on your Achilles tendon with every step. And unless you work up to that, uh, a lot of people get sore. So I would tell you, figure out what works best for you. Uh, there's not solid science around that, except for you usually know quite a bit about what works for your body. And if you're tight, don't drop yourself into an immediate stretch, dynamic, ballistic stretch position right away, repetitively, or you're asking for trouble. Expand, expand on that, on like the, basically the picking of the scab via, via static stretch. So what's the question? <laughs> I guess I guess my feeling is that is people's immediate reaction all the time. Something doesn't feel quite right, and they start static stretching. And I and I like to refer to that as like almost like picking the scab of the injury or of the soreness or of the issue. And oftentimes that can lead to you to you know um, more impactful things down the line. So when you say like make sure you don't just just stop and do static stretching, why is that a negative? Well, no. So what I was saying is don't just jump into a flat shoe because you're immediately producing a dynamic stretch with every 
every step. Oh, gotcha. As opposed to having a heel lift where you're not stretching quite that much. That's what we're saying. The, the data on static stretches versus dynamic stretches, there's more passion than there is data. And again, I think people are get to know their body and know what works well for them. I couldn't agree more. I also am a big fan of like, when do you run? Right. So like someone's like they run in the afternoon. They've been they've been moving around all day. Maybe they don't even sit down a lot as opposed to like, hey, I wake up at five and I'm out the door at five thirty. It's like, well, your body are those two people are their bodies are in very different settings in terms of like what they're prepared to do um, in those situations. That's usually people I talk to, people who listen to this podcast. They're kind of one of those camps or the other. They're either getting it done super early or they're doing it after work and they're trying to fit it in. Is not really a question, question but just 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 <laughs> just kind of like expand, expanding on the point yeah well dr stone thank you so much for coming on the show uh people want to learn more about you where are the where are some places they can go you referenced your book earlier because you're obviously a man who's well versed in so many things who can teach all of us mere mortals what you know how, how we can improve and how we can run for the vast majority of our lives so a few things. Number one, I'm orthopedic surgeon at the Stone Clinic in San Francisco, and that's at stoneclinic.com. And you can find lots of it, the information we talked about on that site. I also am chairman of a public nonprofit research foundation where we're driven on the research of how to keep athletes playing forever, accelerating healing, treating, preventing, curing arthritis. And that's at stoneresearch.org. And then I write a blog each week about all these topics. And that's at stoneclinic slash blog. And then, uh, of course, there's a book called Play Forever, trying to keep you active and have you drop dead at age 100 playing the sports you love. Dr. Stone, this has been absolutely fantastic. I'd love to have you on again as, as you know, you're your busy guy. If the schedule uh, opens up, just talk about more topics like this, because I think this is really fascinating stuff, if not just for me personally, but for our audience as well. Thank you so much. Happy to do that anytime. And the answer to your question on when do you run is whenever you can. Man, what a way to end. Thank you so much.